We'll be in uh, Acts chapter 21, verses 17 through 26. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and, <clears throat> and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will be certainly they will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself among with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated, and let's pray together as we come to God's Word this morning. Our God and our Father, as always, we acknowledge that this is Your Word, that these are not just words that were written by Luke about You, but that the Holy Spirit is the one who breathed these words out through the Apostle Luke. And so we come to them as they are the Word of God. We come to them as the inerrant and infallible Word of God. We come to them as the living and active words of God. We come with reverence. We come with awe. We come with gratitude. We come pleading for the Holy Spirit to be with us and to help us understand, to help me proclaim. And Father, to help us all not just to understand and be hearers of the Word, but more and more to become doers of Your Word. And so Father, continue to transform us by the renewing of our minds through the power of Your Word. Holy Spirit, illuminate this Word to our knowledge and our understanding and use it powerfully as the double-edged sword that it is in our lives and lead us in the everlasting way through it. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in Your sight this day, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Luke records for us, not here but in the Gospel Luke, Gospel of Luke, Luke records for us where he, where he chronicles the events of Jesus' life and death and resurrection in his Gospel in Luke chapter 9. He records that after sending out his twelve disciples to proclaim the Gospel of repentance and faith in him, and after feeding the 5,000 in order to demonstrate that, that He alone, that Jesus alone is the source of the true food that leads to everlasting life. 
And after saying to his disciples, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And after telling his disciples that they must be ready to take up their crosses daily and follow him, and after the great transfiguration where, where Jesus spoke with Moses and Elijah and was marvelously glorified in, in demonstration of the awesome fulfillment of the Old Testament law and prophets that Jesus was and that he would accomplish, and after God the Father spoke from heaven saying, this is my Son, my chosen one, listen to him. And after demonstrating his absolute power and authority over Satan and the kingdom of darkness by healing a boy who had been afflicted with an unclean spirit. After all of that, in Luke chapter 9, Luke tells us that Jesus set his face, in Luke's words, to go to Jerusalem. That little... Middle Eastern idiom, he set his face, means that Jesus resolved in his soul, in his mind, and with his body, he resolved in every part of his being to go to the place where he would suffer, where he would be rejected, and be arrested, and be beaten horribly, and ultimately be crucified. And Luke tells us that as Jesus began the long journey from the northern region of Galilee where he was ministering and made his way down the Jordan River Valley and and eventually up into the hill country of Judah and the, the central Benjamin Plateau where Jerusalem is situated that Jesus sent messengers ahead of him along that journey into a Samaritan village in order to try to make preparations for him along that journey to find lodging, essentially. But the Samaritans despised the Jews. And so when they learned that Jesus was coming along his way to Jerusalem, they would not receive him, which, which illustrated kind of as a microcosm, the disregard and the contempt that the unbelieving world has for Jesus. But Jesus pressed on anyways, because the entire purpose for which he came into the world was to come as a servant, not to be served, but to serve, not to demand his own rights, but to lay them down. To lay his whole life down, to pour out his blood, to pour out his life in becoming a ransom for many. The whole purpose why Jesus came was to go to Jerusalem in order to be rejected and to suffer and to die so that all who believe in him would have eternal life. And here now, Acts chapter 21 Almost 30 years later, Luke finds himself in this all-too-familiar situation up in Caesarea with the Apostle Paul, who has also, we saw this last week, set his face towards Jerusalem. 
towards suffering, towards rejection, towards sacrifice, towards loss. Not claiming his own rights. Not saying, my life is worth anything, but ready to lay it all down for the ministry that Jesus had called him to. Paul has resolved, even as Jesus had, in his mind, in his heart, with his body, with every fiber of his being, constrained by the Holy Spirit, full of conviction, as we saw last time, with an ironclad commitment, ready to count the ultimate cost. He's resolved to go to the place where he knows by the testimony and by the prophecies of God the Holy Spirit that he will be rejected, that he will suffer, that he will be bound, that he will be imprisoned. And ultimately handed over to the Gentiles, which eventually will lead to his death. And so even again, as we saw last time, even though Luke admits that in his own humanness and in his own great love for Paul, that Luke had been among the ones who pleaded with Paul not to go. Now Luke has come once again in his own life to be reoriented in his own convictions, in his own commitments, to be submitted in his own mind and spirit and body to the will of God regardless of the cost. To living that life that Jesus says all of his followers must live. Being willing to count whatever cost. Being willing to acknowledge that Jesus is more precious than anything else in this world, even life itself. And so, Luke records in verse 15 of Acts 21 here, After these days we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. And so, tracing the footsteps of the Master, and knowing that there is no turning back, they all made their way to Jerusalem where bondage and imprisonment and persecution and oppression awaited Paul. And our passage today sees them coming to Jerusalem about a uh, two to three days journey maybe from Caesarea and coming into the house of this man named Manasseh who was from Cyprus and who had become a disciple of Jesus, it says, in the early days and now apparently was living near to Jerusalem, just outside of the city somewhere. So verse 17, Luke says, When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. But, as we're going to see today, not all of the Christians who were in Jerusalem were glad that Paul was there and had come to town. And that's because a lot of the Christians there were harboring hard feelings toward the Apostle Paul that were based on what was at best a misunderstanding and and more likely, more actually, a misrepresentation of some critical important things that Paul taught about the law. Paul had been being slandered and Christians in Jerusalem had believed false reports about him and now were harboring ill feelings towards Paul. And because of this wrong view of Paul's belief... Therefore, many of these Christians, they didn't trust Paul. 
And so that was threatening Paul's reputation, and more importantly, it was threatening the unity of the church, and it was threatening the cause of the gospel. And today we're going to see what that was all about, and more importantly, we're going to see how Paul dealt with it. And we're going to learn how we might deal with similar things ourselves. So, when Luke says there in verse 17 that the brothers received them gladly once Paul and his companions got to Jerusalem, understand that the brothers there doesn't refer to the entire church in Jerusalem, to all of the believing Christians there. It's a smaller subset, which includes probably the elders of that church and certain other core people in the church who were well known and trusted by the church leadership. And this early disciple named Manasseh, who hosted Paul and the other companions of Paul in his home, he's among those brothers who were glad, who understood, and so rejoiced when Paul arrived in Jerusalem. Now, we don't know much of anything else about Manasseh. His name doesn't appear anywhere else in the book of Acts, anywhere else in the New Testament, in fact. All we know is that he was one of the early disciples of Jesus according to verse 16 here. Probably what that means is that Manasseh was one of the original converts to Jesus and to the gospel all the way back on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the disciples. And remember, they spoke in tongues and they prophesied and literally thousands of people who had come to Jerusalem for Pentecost that year, they all believed and were given new life in Christ. Manasseh was originally from Cyprus. And it seems pretty likely that he had come to Jerusalem all those years ago for Pentecost, almost 30 years before the events here of, of chapter 21, and he had witnessed all that, that great outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and that his own eyes were opened, and his own heart was reborn, and he was given living faith in Jesus and filled with the Holy Spirit, and that he ended up then staying there in Jerusalem in order to be a part of the church, because that mattered more than whatever he had going on back in Cyprus. All of the priorities of his life had probably been completely redefined and reoriented and and, and reshaped by Jesus. And having been there from the earliest days, Manasseh would now have been one of the more mature people in the church in Jerusalem. Someone who had known the apostles personally, who had been learning and growing in the gospel now for several decades. He would have been at the Jerusalem Council back in Acts chapter 15 that had occurred more than a decade before the time now in chapter 21. Paul and Barnabas had been at that same council, remember? Which had been convened in Jerusalem to deal with a very, very important question and issue about the Gentiles being brought into the church. And that's the same issue now that has has cropped up again here in chapter 21. And what was behind the misunderstanding and the misrepresentation of Paul's teaching about the law and, and what was behind all of these false accusations about Paul. And so Paul and his companions, a lot of his companions would have been Gentiles, and they themselves therefore might have been looked on with some suspicion by the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, they've all come to Jerusalem and they found a warm welcome by the leaders of the church there 
And they've been shown hospitality by Manasseh during their stay in Jerusalem, which means that the leaders of the church trust Manasseh a lot in order to allow him to house Paul and his companions when there's controversy about these people. And in verse 18 it says that they all went the next day, the following day, into the city to meet with James and all of the elders of the Jerusalem church. The elders knew in advance that Paul was coming. They knew that he had arrived in Jerusalem. They had set up this place for them to stay. And Paul's not just popping in for a visit. Almost certainly the elders of the church have called for Paul to come and meet with them because there was this controversy going on in their church about the reputation of the Apostle Paul. They had something very, very important that they needed to discuss with him. And so Paul comes to meet with them. And at the head of that group of of leaders in the Jerusalem church is James. And the James who is named here, it's important to note, is not the James who, along with his little brother John, the sons of Zebedee, were known as the sons of thunder. Remember in the Gospels? This isn't that James. That James was one of the first of the original 12 apostles to be martyred in Acts chapter 12 when Herod Agrippa had him beheaded. So, since he's been dead since chapter 12, he's obviously not the same James who is named here in chapter 21. There are at least two other Jameses that we know about in the New Testament, who at least two are significant. One of them was also one of the original 12 apostles. They called him James the Younger in order to distinguish him from James the Son of Thunder. That James, James the Younger, was the son of a a man named Alphaeus. And his mother, who was named Mary, was with Jesus' mother Mary at the crucifixion, Mark and Luke tell us. And John tells us, That those two Marys, Mary the mother of Jesus and Mary the mother of James, that they were actually sisters. Which means that James the younger, the son of Alphaeus, one of the original twelve apostles, was actually Jesus' cousin. But this James, in the book of Acts, the James who Paul met and who presided over the Jerusalem council in Acts 15 and who was in leadership over the Jerusalem church and who Paul calls in Galatians chapter 2 one of the pillars of the church in Jerusalem. This James is not either of those other two Jameses. This James is actually the biological brother of Jesus, named in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. Paul calls him the brother of the Lord in Galatians chapter 1 where he recounts meeting this James in Jerusalem not too long after his conversion back in chapter 9. This James, Jesus' brother, biological brother, half-brother really since, since James was the biological son of Mary and Joseph and Jesus of course who was conceived of the Holy Spirit was the biological son of Mary, but not technically of Joseph. So they're half-brothers. This James, who did not follow Jesus during his ministry on this earth, 
This James became a believer, became a devoted follower of Jesus and a faithful servant only after the resurrection of Jesus because Jesus appeared to him. After the resurrection, Paul records it in 1 Corinthians 15. He says in 1 Corinthians 15 and 5 that Jesus appeared first to James before then appearing to all the apostles. I think what he means there is is that first Jesus appeared to his kid brother, to his biological brother who had never followed him before as the risen Lord that he is. And then to all the apostles, including the other two, James. And Jesus did that in order to bring his little brother in as a believer and and as an apostle. And so this James, who we see here in the book of Acts, is, I believe, the half-brother of Jesus. And having seen his resurrected brother appear to him, just like Paul who also encountered the risen Jesus on the Damascus Road, right? And was made an apostle. Just like that, James, Jesus' brother, having been made an apostle by being encountered by the risen Lord, then stayed in Jerusalem. Witnessed his risen big brother Jesus ascend up into heaven on a cloud experienced the Holy Spirit's outpouring on the day of Pentecost, became profoundly involved in the church in Jerusalem, became a a massively important figure in the church in Jerusalem and in the kingdom of God. He's the author of the book of James in your New Testament. And so this, I believe, is the James who is mentioned throughout the book of Acts who became the leader of the church in Jerusalem, who presided over the council in Jerusalem in chapter 15, and who now summons Paul to come and meet with him in chapter 21. So after greeting James and the other elders of the church, verse 19 says that Paul related one by one all of the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And that was a lot of things, right? You remember that It was when Paul was in Corinth, back in chapter 18, occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. That was when the Jewish people opposed him so much and reviled him so much that Paul shook out his garments and said to those Jews, your blood's on your own heads. I'm innocent. I've told you the truth. I've given you the warning. I've proclaimed the gospel to you. You've rejected it. I'm moving on now and I'm going to the Gentiles. Remember? And so he became known as the apostle to the Gentiles because even though Paul was Jewish, the greatest work that the Holy Spirit accomplished through him was in the spread of the gospel to predominantly Gentile territories, especially during Paul's second and third missionary journeys. And so Paul, Paul's recounting all that. He's emphasizing all of that here. He's highlighting the awesome power of the gospel here in not just bringing Jewish people to faith in Jesus, right? The Jewish people understood the Old Testament. They understood the Scriptures. They understood the promises and the prophecies of the coming Messiah. And many of them had come to understand and believe that Jesus was that Messiah. But the Gentiles, they didn't even know the Scriptures, They didn't even know the prophecies. They didn't even know about the promises. 
They'd all grown up in false religion, in paganism, and in idolatry all their lives. They had massively skewed worldviews. And the power of the gospel and the power of God the Holy Spirit had brought them in, in droves, thousands, myriads of them, to repentance and faith in Christ all across Asia and Macedonia and Greece. And when James and the other elders of the church in Jerusalem heard all about all this amazing work that Paul had done among the Gentiles that God had accomplished in the lives and hearts of the Gentiles and churches that had been built in Gentile cities, verse 20 says, when they heard all about that, they glorified God. Well, of course they did, right? They were amazed. They were thrilled that the gospel was spreading like wildfire all throughout the Roman Empire. And that so many Gentiles were being redeemed and saved by grace through faith in Jesus. But remember with me here, and this is what's important to this story in Acts 21. Remember that when that all first started happening, when the Gentiles first started being saved by grace alone through faith alone and being brought into the church back in Acts chapter 10... That caused something of an uproar among the Jews, right? Among the Christian Jews. Because until then, the Jewish people had thought that the blessings of God's salvation were for them. Primarily and almost exclusively. And they had for all of their history devoted themselves to studying and understanding the Word of God in the Old Testament Scriptures. And to observing all of the prescriptions of right worship that God had laid out for them. And they had devoted themselves to to keeping the law of God that's revealed in the scriptures, right? And so they thought, we're we're the ones, if God's going to pour out salvation, we're the ones that are going to be the recipients of that. But then you remember that God gave Peter that vision, Right back in Acts chapter 10, he was in the household of Cornelius, he was hungry, and God showed him a vision of all these animals coming down from heaven on what appeared to be a sheet. Even animals that the Old Testament law defined as unclean animals, forbidden animals for the Jews to eat back in the Old Covenant time. But now God says, Peter, rise and kill and eat. And at first, remember, Peter said, no way, I'm not eating that. I'm not eating pigs and cloven-hoofed animals and whatever else. I'm not going to defile myself with these unclean animals. And God said to Peter, do not call unclean that which I have made clean. Remember? Meaning that now in the new covenant in Jesus Christ, so many of those old Testament ceremonial laws, including the dietary laws, had become obsolete now that there was the fulfillment of Jesus in the new covenant. And so not only was there freedom in those areas, you can eat that stuff now, but there was more importantly, there were massive obstacles being removed so that the gospel could begin to be brought to the Gentiles who ate pork and other kinds of things. So that they could be brought into the church without the hindrance of those old obsolete rules. And in the wake of that, a lot of the Jewish people who had come to follow Jesus were kind of upset. 
Not that the gospel was being preached to the Gentile people, but that Paul and Barnabas seemed to just be charging all over the civilized world and just calling Gentiles willy-nilly in mass to come in. People who had never shown any interest in the God of Scripture. People who had lived their whole lives in paganism and idolatry and immorality. They were calling them to come and be a part of the Christian community just like that. No prerequisites. And so the, back in those days, the Jewish people in Jerusalem, those Jewish believers in Jesus, that said that they had been part of the party of the Pharisees. They had, been, they had been raised up according to that rigid, strict tradition. Their lives had been devoted to learning God's truth and worshiping the true God and obeying His law rigorously. They had this concern. They were saying, look, look, we're, we're happy that, that, to bring Gentiles in, but for goodness sake, we got to do it the right way. And to them, the right way in their thinking was to make sure that these Gentile converts were, were circumcised physically and taught to understand and adhere to all of the Old Testament laws first as a prerequisite. I mean, they didn't want paganism and idolatry and immorality to come flooding into the church, see, with the inclusion of all of these Gentiles. And so back there in the earlier chapters in Acts, there were a lot of Jewish Christians who were, in essence, insisting that in order for Gentiles to become Christians, in order for them to become saved according to the promises of God that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, First, they thought, they have to essentially become Jewish. Because they thought salvation is for the Jews. You can't just give it away to just anyone for free, right? There's got to be a price they pay. They've got to earn it somehow. They've got to become converted to Jewishness first, which meant being circumcised physically and keeping the Old Testament law. And you remember that all of that ruckus led to a big council being convened in Jerusalem, which James presided over back in Acts chapter 15. And the big question was, how do we go about incorporating all these Gentiles into the church? And again, a lot of the Jewish Christians who were of the party of the Pharisees were insisting that first, before they could be brought in, before they could be saved, they had to be circumcised and taught to observe and keep the law. Otherwise, they said in Acts 15 verse 5, otherwise it's impossible for them to be saved unless they do those things first. And so, for them, circumcision and the law weren't just things that should never change. They were prerequisites for salvation. And that was really what was at the heart of the controversy that the Jerusalem Council met to make a determination about. Paul was there for all of that. And the determination that the council came to, under James's supervision, was that since true salvation comes by grace alone, through faith in Jesus alone, apart from prerequisite good works, then circumcision and the law can't be prerequisites, prerequisites for anyone being saved. But then they also determined, remember, that holiness 
and obedience to God do have to be, must be, necessary results of someone being saved. They can't lead to salvation, but they must come from salvation. And so, they wrote a letter after the Jerusalem Council and sent it, right, from Jerusalem up to the Gentile communities in the north, telling them that those Gentile people who had become believers in Jesus were welcomed in simply through faith in Jesus alone. You don't need to get circumcised. But now that you are saved, now that you are believers and followers of Jesus, they told them that they needed to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from drinking blood, and from eating what was being strangled, and from sexual immorality, and all those things James reminds Paul about here in our passage in Acts 21. And remember, all those specific things were things that were associated with the pagan rituals of idolatry, the worship of false gods and false temples that were common in the pagan religions that that all these Gentile people had come out of. And so essentially what they're saying is, salvation is free. It's a gift of God. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works that you do, but once you're saved, you must repent and forsake all of that idolatry and all of those wicked immoral practices. And so the council in Jerusalem had insisted no prerequisites for the Gentiles to be saved. You don't have to do anything in order to get saved, but having been saved, they needed to turn from all that idolatry and immorality that was once characterized in their lives. And you remember that everywhere that Paul went preaching the gospel, that's what he was teaching them also, and that's what they were doing, burning huge piles of occultic books in the streets, right? Turning from all of the idols to serve the living God, remember? We've seen it over and over in the ministry of Paul. And yet, there are people who are accusing him of the opposite. And so Paul, who was there in Acts 15... He would say in his letters all throughout the New Testament that we are justified through faith alone apart from the works of the law. And James, who was also there presiding over the council in Acts 15, would say in the letter that he wrote in the New Testament that faith without works is dead and cannot save you. And those two things don't contradict each other, do they? They're both right, see? Because the good works, the works of the law, are not prerequisites of salvation, but they are the necessary products of saving faith. And so here now, in Acts 21, Paul's back in Jerusalem. And he's been relating to James and to the elders all of this wonderful work of God in bringing countless Gentiles into the kingdom through faith alone in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they praise God for it. They glorify God for it. They say all glory to God for bringing these Gentiles into his kingdom and for bringing them to salvation. And then they say, now Paul, listen. Verse 20. Listen, brother. You see, brother, how many thousands there are. The Greek word is myriads. You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. So, hear their tone. 
We're glad, Paul, for all this great work among the Gentiles that you've been immersed in for so many years now, but please don't forget, brother, about all these thousands of Jewish people who have also become Christians and be sensitive to the fact that these people are zealous for the law. Now, what does he mean? Well, he doesn't mean that they think that works of the law are necessary prerequisites for salvation. He just means that even though these Jewish people have been justified through faith alone, just like all the Gentiles out there have been, that as Jews, their allegiance to the Old Testament law and all of the traditions and customs that they've grown up with is still kind of a big deal for them. And they're still like they have been all their lives, they're zealous for certain Old Testament laws, even though they know that their salvation didn't come from their keeping those laws. And so, many now of these Jewish Christians, saved by faith alone, still observe certain Jewish ceremonies and holy days, still didn't feel comfortable eating pork, still took various kinds of Old Testament vows as as a reflection of their devotion to God and their piety. Because in their consciences, as Christians who were Jewish, those things still mattered to them a lot in order to express devotion to God. And so in verse 21, James tells Paul that these zealous, pious, law-keeping Jewish Christians, that they've been told... And they've probably been told this by the unbelieving Jews, by, by the Pharisees who are in Jerusalem, they, who are trying to slander Paul. See, they've been told that Paul is running around all over the empire telling Jewish people to forsake the Old Testament law and to reject all of the customs like circumcision that the Jews had held dear for so long. And so Paul's being accused of not only proclaiming that Jesus is the true Messiah and that salvation only comes through faith in Him and that works of the law aren't necessary as prerequisites to become saved. Paul's being accused of telling people that they should forsake the law. The word that James uses for forsake there is the word apostasia. It It means rebellion. Someone who's an apostate is someone who forsakes God who casts God aside, who casts God's truth aside. And that's what Paul is being accused of doing with the law of Moses, forsaking it, despising it, casting it aside, treating it as utterly worthless. When to these Jews it was was precious, it had always been precious. But see, none of that that Paul was being accused of was actually true, right? Paul was the one, remember up in chapter 16, when Paul was in Derby and Lystra, and he met Timothy for the first time, what did he do? Timothy's mother was Jewish, and Timothy's father was Greek, and Timothy hadn't been circumcised, and Paul wanted Timothy to come with him and minister the gospel, and he knew that there would be Jewish people in a lot of those places, so what did he do? He had him circumcised. Why? Not because he thought that circumcision was necessary for salvation, not even because he thought that circumcision was was important in any religious sense anymore in the New Covenant. Paul already knew better than that. 
Paul understood now better than anyone that the circumcision of the old covenant was just a foreshadowing that has become obsolete of what Jesus now in the new covenant has fulfilled in the true circumcision of the heart. Paul writes about that in Romans chapter 2 and Colossians chapter 2. The circumcision that is a matter of the heart, Romans 2.29. That's what matters now in the New Covenant. The circumcision that is made without hands. The circumcision that comes from Christ purifying your hearts. Colossians 2.11 So then, if the old is obsolete because the new is better, why did he have Timothy physically circumcised in Acts 16? Well, not because that was important for Timothy's faith or salvation, surely, or even religious devotion to God, but because... As they went into places where Jewish people were and labored to proclaim the gospel among those Jewish people, they wanted to remove any stumbling block and any source of offense that might cause the Jewish people to say, we're not even going to listen to you and take you seriously at all because Timothy's uncircumcised. And so see, this is how it worked for Paul with regard to these Old Testament customs, right? It wasn't about, well, I have this freedom now and I'm going to fight for my rights to do whatever I want to do and what I believe I have the right to do, no matter how it affects anybody else. For Paul, just like Jesus, who laid it all down and came here to become a servant and bleed and die, for Paul, it was always all about serving others. He knew that now in the New Covenant, so many of these Old Testament customs had become obsolete and that it wasn't necessary to observe them in any religious sense, certainly not in order to be saved. And that's what he told the Gentiles. But when it came to evangelizing the Jews, Paul never let those things get in the way of the Gospel because that's the only thing that was important to him. The glory of Christ and the everlasting souls of people who needed salvation. And so, if Timothy undergoing circumcision meant removing a potential obstacle to the Jewish people hearing the gospel, then it was worth it for Paul. It was worth it for Timothy, who had to be the one to undergo that procedure. Even though that Paul knew that circumcision meant nothing for Timothy's faith or salvation or, or even sanctification. And even if Paul knew that he had the freedom to eat pork, right? Remember, he would gladly refrain from eating it if he was around Jewish people who might be offended by that. Or if it would cause an obstacle to their hearing the gospel. And this is exactly what Paul taught other Christians to do also, isn't it? All throughout the letters that he writes in the New Testament. In Romans 14, he says that if you know it's okay to eat or drink a certain thing, but your eating or drinking it might make someone else stumble because their conscience is bothered by that and your indulging in it might tempt them to violate their conscience then it's much better for you to not enjoy the freedom that you have in order to love and bless your brother or your sister in the Lord. 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul, who knows he's free to, uh, to, to eat whatever kind of meat he wants to eat now, as a Christian in the New Covenant, says, look, if, if food makes my brother stumble, then I'll never eat meat again, lest I make my brother stumble. I'd rather be a vegetarian than make my brother stumble. Because his brother matters more than his own personal freedom and liberties in life. And that's the point. In 1 Corinthians 10, the big controversy that the Christians in Corinth were disagreeing over was whether or not it was okay to go down to the market and to buy and to eat meat that was sold there in the marketplace, but that got there by having previously been sacrificed to idols in a pagan temple. The idolatry, the the paganism wasn't going on in the marketplace. They were just selling meat. But there was idolatry going on in the pagan temples where animals were being slaughtered and sacrificed to false gods. And then they would take all the meat from those sacrifices down the hill to the market where it would be sold to the general public. And some Christians in Corinth felt like even buying that meat connected them somehow to the idolatry in the temple where that animal was killed. Other Christians in Corinth felt like, look, I'm just buying meat. I'm just feeding my family. And and Paul says that personally and biblically, he agrees with the meat eaters, with those people. It's just meat. It's nothing. You're not going to get spiritually contaminated from buying that meat or from eating that meat. Right? Idolatry isn't some substance that gets in the meat so that if you ingest it, you're going to be filled with idolatry. You can buy the meat. You can eat the meat. You're not somehow tacitly approving of the idolatry that went on when that animal was killed in the temple. You're not somehow inadvertently funding that idolatry by going to the market and buying the meat there. You don't need to boycott the meat. You don't need to boycott the meat industry. You don't need to boycott the meat market. In your opposition to the idolatry and in your zeal for truth and holiness. So he says in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 25, Go ahead and eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Your conscience doesn't need to be burdened by that. Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It was God's cow before it was slaughtered in the pagan temple. So you can eat it. But at the same time, Paul knew that many Christians didn't feel that same way and that their consciences were bothered by it. And so... He told the people who knew they had the freedom to eat the meat not to when they were with the people whose consciences were bothered or if they were with people who might assume that by eating it they were condoning the idolatry in the temples where it had been sacrificed. Because again, the gospel is what matters to Paul the most, not your personal freedom. Not your personal liberty. For Paul, liberty does not matter nearly as much as love. 
That's the point. Personal freedom matters nothing compared to the gospel. You're free to eat the meat, enjoy, but if it might cause someone else an offense or tempt them to violate their own conscience or if it might cause some hindrance to your ability to proclaim the gospel, then you should much rather give up your freedom than cause the offense or be the cause of stumbling or put up an obstacle to the work of the gospel. That's what Paul believed, that's what Paul taught, and that's how Paul lived as a Christian. And so these accusations that he's simply telling Jewish people to forsake the law, to not circumcise their children if they wanted to do that, to reject their traditions and their customs, none of that was true at all. None of those accusations were accurate. But a lot of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem were being told these things about Paul. They were believing these things about Paul. And so the reality was that a lot of the Christians in Jerusalem didn't trust Paul. They had a pretty bad view of him in in their minds. And James and the elders of the Jerusalem church, they knew it. Even though they knew it wasn't true, even though they knew the accusations were false, that this wasn't the kind of guy Paul was. They know Paul's not out there telling people to forsake the law and violate their consciences. Even though they knew that, they knew this was a potentially big problem in the church that they were shepherding in terms of the unity of this church in general and not just in Jerusalem, but but the church at large all over the empire where Paul had been and had been so powerfully used by God. And so James and the the elders there of the church in Jerusalem say, "We, we need to do something about this. And so James proposes this solution, verse 23. Actually, he doesn't really propose anything, does he? He says, you're going to do what we tell you, Paul. Here's what you're going to do. Right? James is a good leader. James is a good shepherd of the flock in Jerusalem. I know you're the apostle, Paul. We're super stoked about everything you've been accomplishing out there. But here's the deal. You're going to do what we tell you to do. And what they tell him to do in verse 24 is to essentially go with a group of these Jewish Christians who are zealous for the law and and who in their consciences still value the Old Testament traditions and vows that Jewish men would take and devote themselves to. And Paul's going to go with them and, and he's going to pay for this himself and participate in one of those vows along with these men, so that all the Christians in Jerusalem will see that Paul is not a despiser of the law. And Paul is not telling anyone to violate their conscience. There were certain vows that Jewish men would take in order to devote themselves to God, like the Nazarite vow, which was spelled out in Numbers chapter 6. Sound familiar? We've seen it already in the book of Acts, haven't we? The Nazarite vow is a special vow. It included, among other things, abstaining from drinking wine and abstaining from cutting your hair for the duration of the vow. It's called a Nazarite vow because the Hebrew word nazir means to be separated out from the rest, to be consecrated, to be marked out for special devotion to God. It was a 
It was a special way for the people of God to signify their devotion to Him by not partaking of earthly pleasures like wine for a time and by not attending to everyday concerns like shaving and haircuts that, so that that person could be singularly and wholly devoted to the service and the worship of the Most High God. And remember that Paul himself had taken this kind of a vow. We saw it back in Acts chapter 18. He was on his way home from his second missionary journey. And he stopped at Syncre and had his head shaved. And he did that because he had, before he left on that journey, taken this vow while he was in Jerusalem. And he had his head shaved now so that he could bring all this big pile of hair back to Jerusalem so people would see that he doesn't despise the law, that he's still devoted to God, that holiness and piety matter, that conscience matters. He did it because he was always motivated by this principle of love over liberty. So back in 18, where Paul shaved his head, that's what he was doing. He was ending the Old Testament Nazarite vow that he had taken two full years earlier, not because his salvation depended on it, not because his spiritual faith or sanctification depended on it, not because he was still bound by Old Covenant ceremonial law. The Nazarite vow wasn't a matter of law, it was voluntary. He did it, though, because he wanted to be able to show all of the Jewish Christians, that he too is zealous to please God. Zealous for holiness. Zealous for the law as he's labored to bring the gospel into the Gentile world. His devotion hasn't wavered the least bit. That's why. And that's what, again, Paul was doing all along his missionary journeys. Because his love for his Jewish Christian brothers back in Jerusalem, was way more important to him than his own personal liberties. So here Paul is now, again, come to Jerusalem. And still, his devotion to God is being called into question by people who are accusing him of forsaking the law and for telling Jewish people to do the same and to violate their consciences. And none of it's true, and he's proven it in all kinds of clear, tangible, self-sacrificing ways. But here he is. And they're telling him, you've got to prove it again. So we've got four men, James tells Paul, who are under a vow. Christian Jewish men, believers, followers of Jesus. Who in their consciences still felt and still believed that these Old Testament ceremonial vows were a a good way to demonstrate devotion to God. Tradition, right? That's all it is, but, but Paul says, that's okay. And James says to Paul, who is in his full and mature understanding of God's Word, knows that there's no need in the New Covenant to do these things anymore. And Paul's been through a lot, right? He's he's, he's given up a lot. He's already taken this kind of a vow himself, even though he didn't have to. He sacrificed a lot more than just shaving, right? And he sacrificed a lot more than his hair. He sacrificed a lot more than eating pork or meat or any amount of money in his devotion to the Lord and and God's kingdom and the gospel, right? There's a lot Paul could point to and say, hey, nobody's got a right to call my devotion into question at all. He could get really defensive here, couldn't he? If he wasn't humble. 
And so James says to Paul, right, who has poured himself out for Christ in the kingdom, take these men and purify yourselves along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. And thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance to the law, that you still treasure holiness and devotion to God. I know you don't have to, Paul. I know the new covenant makes these things obsolete, Paul. I know you've given up a lot already. I know your devotion to God and kingdom and gospel is, is well proven and, and, and established by everything you've sacrificed already. By, by, by even coming to Jerusalem and being willing to sacrifice your very life, I know, Paul. But I also know that the good of this church matters more than your own self-esteem, your own reputation, or what anyone else thinks of you. And so even though what people are saying about you isn't fair, even though it's not true, even though you have every reason to be able to say, you know what, forget those people and forget all that noise about what they're lying about and, and saying about me that's false. James says, I'm telling you, brother, this is what you need to do because the church matters more than you matter. Because this is the way of Christ. It's the way of laying things down. It's the way of sacrifice. It's the way of serving. It's the way of loving first. And Paul, who could have said... And I can't say that if I were in his shoes, I wouldn't have said. Paul, who could have said, man, do you have any idea what I've been through? Do you have any idea how hard it is out there? I mean, you realize, don't you, James? You think you're a big deal, James? You realize who I am, right? I already took that vow. I already shaved my head. And now you want me to do it again? You want me to prove myself more? You want me to pay for these guys to do it? I mean, you realize, right, that I've been out there putting my life on the line and suffering and toiling and counting the cost for years. I mean, you realize, I've, got, I've got this huge offering that I collected from all the churches in Macedonia to give you, and you're asking me to give more? What I've done for your big brother Jesus, James, goes way beyond anything that you've done. He could have said sitting around here in Jerusalem all these years while I'm out there toiling and laboring and suffering. And now you're here telling me what to do. Paul could have said, you know what, James, whatever. Paul could have said, you know, you only got to where you are because your big brother did you a big favor. And after all I've been through, I'm not taking any vow, brother. And I'm sure not paying for anybody else to take one either. But see, none of that, which is just self-important, defensive pride, self-righteous indignation, none of that had so much as a toehold in the heart of the Apostle Paul. Because the same thing that drove Jesus to set his face to Jerusalem had driven Paul. Not a quest for personal liberty, but a quest for sacrificial love. And so when he gets there, he's ready to lay it all down 
And this is a small cost to ask, not a big one. So Paul, verse 26, took those men, purified himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them, so that it would be known among all the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem that Paul did not forsake and despise God's law, that honoring God mattered more to Paul than anything else, just like it mattered to them, so that he would not violate anyone's conscience, so that they would understand that it was his unflagging devotion to God that undergirded his zeal for the gospel and for the kingdom and for the glory of Christ. We've got to close right there. And let me just ask, how about us? Are we on the way of Christ? Or are we in it for us? Are there freedoms that we know God allows us to enjoy that we unthinkingly and uncaringly allow ourselves to flaunt in the faces of Christians whose consciences are different and in such a way that might cause them offense or might cause them to stumble by tempting them to ignore their consciences. Or on the other side, are there causes that we have very, very virtuously taken up things that we've chosen to boycott in our pursuit of holiness according to our consciences and then we look down with judgmental contempt on other brothers and sisters whose consciences allow them to enjoy those things. And so we end up judging them. Are there things in our lives, things that we know we're free to enjoy that that matter more to us than our brothers and our sisters, than the kingdom of God, than the gospel of Jesus Christ matters to us? Are there things that when push comes to shove, we're more likely to sacrifice kingdom opportunities for than we are likely to sacrifice for the kingdom? Are there personal rights and freedoms and liberties that aren't technically matters of sin, but that matter more to us than our love and concern for one another and our devotion to Jesus and to the gospel and to the kingdom. Things that we could give up, things that maybe we should give up in order to bless and encourage others, but instead we selfishly hoard them and even flaunt them in front of others. Or, or maybe worse, we avoid the people. We say, well, if it's going to offend somebody, then I'll just not be with the people. I'll go over here and do what I want to do. Instead of saying, I'd rather give that up and go and bless my brother or my sister. Because which do we love more? One another or self and our freedoms? Which are we devoted to more? God truly, Christ truly, kingdom truly, or self and personal liberty? Those are tough questions. And the double-edged sword of God's Word pierces us all with them today. So let's pray together that the Lord will fill us with the same kind of self-abasing, Christ-like, rights-denying, self-sacrificing, other-serving gospel humility and love. 
that characterized the Apostle Paul all throughout his life and all throughout his ministry. And as we come to the table, let's come seeking the grace of God, demonstrating in the self-abasing, self-sacrificing, all-serving love of Jesus that transforms us into the image of His glory in those ways. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we do thank You for the double-edged sword of Your Word. We do thank You, Father, that it pierces us and penetrates down into the depths of our beings and exposes everything that's in there as we are accountable to You who are all-knowing. And so, Father, we ask that You would convict us this morning and that You would also lavish us with the love and the grace of Christ that has been selflessly and sacrificially poured out on us. That seeing His glory, Father, we might be conformed to the image of His glory from one level of glory to the next and the next and the next so that what He loves would more and more be what we love. What He hates would be more and more what he, we hate. That the way He loves would be more and more the way we love. And that as we love one another with that Christ-like love, that the world might look at us and know that we belong to Him. And so, Father, feed us and sanctify us and transform us and mature us and grow us by Your strength, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.